I will now predict the exact moment in time when every single one of you will enjoy the best tasting Coca-Cola ever. It will be the very moment that you pick up this can, because inside this can is the new taste of Coca-Cola. The best tasting Coca-Cola ever. You will taste the new taste immediately, and you will like it a lot. Now, if you're a Coke drinker, wait till you taste this one. If you're a Pepsi drinker, well, I predict we're going to be real friendly from here on in for a long, long time. One of the things that they did, which no one knew at the time, was they conducted their own blind taste tests, and they were horrified to find that Pepsi actually did beat Coke a little bit more than half the time in these blind taste tests. And they thought, this can't be. I mean, for a company like Coca-Cola, which has this huge pride, we are the best. You know, there's no question that Coca-Cola is superior to this upstart, this pipsqueak, Pepsi. For them to find that these blind taste tests revealed this was really shocking. And so they started to play around with the formula. As Coca-Cola enters its 100th year, we know of no better way to thank the billions of consumers who have made Coca-Cola what it is than to give them a Coca-Cola that is better than ever. Introducing the new taste of Coca-Cola. In this country, the best have a way of getting better, and Coke just did. From today, there's a new taste, a new standard against which colas will be judged. The management of this company honestly and truly reveres our consumers. More than we revere a century-old formula. I've never been as confident about a decision as I am about the one we're announcing today. Well, today, Coke announced a new real thing, a change in his formula. And as Mike Jensen reports, Pepsi said baloney. Pepsi is giving its employees the day off to celebrate. Pepsi says by today's action, Coke has admitted that it's not the real thing. We'll call it Drinkers of America. Thank you for participating. Please don't change the taste of Coke. They can't do it. That's un-American because we fought wars to to have a choice, to have freedom. They changed my Coke. Something wrong with it? I don't know, but they sure changed it. Coulda asked. I coulda. I stuck with them through three wars and a couple of dust storms, but this is too much. Guess something big made them change. Right, big. Let me read you a few letters. Here's one from Michigan. A nurse writes, My history with Coke covers a lifetime. I cut my teeth drinking Coke. I went to the drive-in restaurants and ordered Coke. I drank Coke for morning sickness while pregnant. I drank Coke, not coffee, studying for the final exams at nursing school. I still drink Coke for pickups and enjoyment of taste. We have brought Coke at our home by, by three cases at a time to be sure we don't run out. And here's another. Changing Coke is like God making the grass purple. Or putting toes on our ears. Or teeth on our knees. Here's one that starts, Dear Chief Dodo. Well, I passed that along to Roberto unopened. But, but he told me what it said. Quote, What ignoramus decided to change the formula of Coke? The new formula is unexciting and it's as bad as Pepsi. Burn it. Now, there's one consumer that we'd like to single out. He's Mr. Gay Mullins of Seattle, Washington. And I want him to know that the first case of Coca-Cola Classic 
will be hand-delivered to him in appreciation for his message. What a treasure. Thank you, Mr. Collins. So how many of you remember the Coca-Cola scandal of 1985, right? Can you believe it has been 25 years this summer since the Coca-Cola scandal happened? I remember being a teenager when they changed the formula of Coca-Cola and being completely devastated, thinking I'm going to have to live the rest of my life without the original formula of Coca-Cola. And I wasn't by myself. If you were alive and remember that time period, and I can't believe there's some people that don't. We actually had some people on our staff that were like, Coke changed the formula? They had no idea that Coke had changed the formula. And it was like the major news story of the time. You know, it was a big deal. And people literally were protesting by the thousands all across the United States. They were gathering in cities. It was a major. And so in honor of that 25th anniversary, today when you leave, you get a free Coke. We're going to have Coca-Colas outside as you leave. And, and, and the reason for that is... The sad reality is that although people refuse to settle for less than the real thing when it comes to their soda, unfortunately, people are very content to settle for less than the real thing when it comes to their faith. We are studying together as a church family through the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent the last year or so just going verse by verse through that wonderful sermon that Jesus delivered. This morning, we begin a new series in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. We begin chapter 6. And in chapter 6, Jesus is talking about the real thing. Authentic faith. And what it looks like for you and I to live out our faith in our everyday lives. Now, what's going to happen this morning is we're going to look just at verse number 1. In chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus lays a general principle about what it looks like, what the real thing, authentic faith, a genuine relationship with God. He begins to describe what it looks like generally. And then over the next 16 or 18 verses, Jesus gives three examples As you read on through this chapter, you'll hear him say, now when you give, here's what it looks like. And then kind of in the middle of the chapter, he says, and when you pray, here's what it looks like. And in the context of talking about prayer is when we're given that wonderful gift that we call the Lord's Prayer. It's in the context of Jesus describing what real, authentic, genuine faith looks like that he gives us this prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. And then he'll describe when you fast. And it was not by coincidence that Jesus picked almsgiving to the poor and praying and fasting. Those would have been the three defining practices of every Jew that would have been in his audience. 
So Jesus selected the very essence of the practice of their faith and began to describe what it looks like for us to live it out. So if you have your Bible, open to Matthew chapter 6, and I want to just read verse 1 this morning. This is what it says. Jesus says, beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. To be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. Jesus begins with a word that should grab our attention. It's the word beware. It means literally in the Greek language to pay careful attention, to be very observant. And I grew up, I've told you many times, I didn't grow up in, in the West. I didn't grow up in a major metropolitan area. I grew up in a small town in Alabama called Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And in, in my town, we didn't have the sophistication of lease laws and fenced-in yards and all the things that we have here in Las Vegas where you've got your little postage stamp and you live on that postage stamp and it's blocked in from everybody else's postage stamp. That's not the way it was where I grew up. And it wasn't uncommon where I grew up for you to walk up towards somebody's place, their home, and on their mailbox would be a sign that said, Beware of the dog. Now, in our culture out here in Las Vegas, there's some people put up the sign, beware of the dog, but who cares, right? It's either on a leash, it's in the fence. You don't have to beware of nothing unless you get in their backyard. You don't have to be afraid. But where I grew up, if, if, if that sign said, beware of the dog, let me tell you what you did. As soon as you got anywhere near that house, you were paying very careful attention because that dog could be anywhere. And you knew that at any moment you could turn and be looking eyeball to eyeball with a Rottweiler that thought you were going to be dinner. (laughs) But Jesus here doesn't say, just beware at certain times. The tense of this word that Jesus uses literally could be translated, be constantly aware. He's talking about something, not that just at certain times of our week, maybe when I'm at church on Sunday. No, no, no. He's talking about something that moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, I'm to live as a follower of Jesus Christ with a constant awareness of this thing. Well, what is this thing that he's talking about? Well, look what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness. And that phrase, practicing your righteousness, could literally be said this way. Beware, pay attention to the outward expression of your relationship with God. Jesus here is saying that you and I, as followers of Christ, should always be aware of the manner in which we live out our faith. Now, why is that? Well, let me give you two ways, kind of an introduction, that people attempt to live out their faith. And understand the context here. When Jesus is preaching this sermon, he's talking specifically to believers. He's talking to his followers. So here Jesus is not talking to people that don't know him. Jesus is really speaking to people that do know him. 
So there are two ways that even followers of Jesus, we attempt to live out our faith. And Jesus says we need to be careful to make sure that it's the real thing. First of all, is what I call the outside-in method. And I define it this way. Focusing on the external activities in an attempt to cover up or justify the darkness on the inside. You see, if we're not careful, if we're not paying attention, living out our faith, we focus on the outside. And we try to do all the right things and not do all the wrong things. And in many ways, we're doing that as an attempt to cover up so that nobody knows how dark it really is on the inside. Jesus wrote about this to the Pharisees. Listen to what he said. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 27. It's on the screen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men. But inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If we're not careful, even as followers of Jesus Christ... We can so focus on the outside thinking if I can just change the outside, then maybe it'll cover up or just maybe, maybe if I'll just do all the right things, then God will be happy with who I am on the inside. He'll just forget about all the rest of that stuff. But then there's a second way. It's what I call the inside out. And here's the way I define that. Focusing on intimacy with God on the inside that produces a changed life on the outside. Now that's what Jesus is talking about here. That's the real thing. This is pursuing a relationship with God. One approach puts all the focus on the activities The other approach puts all the focus on intimacy with God. And as I focus on intimacy with God, then God begins to change me on the inside so that what comes out of me is not a better me, it's Christ in me. It's the inside out. Now, why does Jesus tell us to be constantly aware of this? Well, there, there are several reasons. I, I want to give you kind of a foundation, then I want to give you two reasons. I think one of the reasons that Jesus tells us to be constantly aware of this is because He knows the natural tendency of our flesh is to drift towards focus on the outside. You know why? Hey, give me the list of five do's and don'ts, and I can hit that. Don't start messing with my attitudes and you know, my motivations and my bitterness and those things. Let's just keep it out here. The natural tendency of the flesh is to drift towards religion. Not relationship. Let me give you two reasons Jesus says to be constantly aware. Here's the first one. The real thing is the only life that pleases the Father. I want to read you a passage of scripture that was written by a man named David. David in the Bible is one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. 
I love David. I think one of the reasons I love David is because if you were going to make a list of the five big don'ts, I think David broke them all. If the scorecard was activities, David's grade would have been what? An F. But the Bible says of David, he was a man after God's own heart. How can that be? If David blew all the big five, I mean, if David failed on the score, how could David have been a man after God's own heart? Because David knew that the real thing was not about my performance, but it was about my relationship with God. Listen to what David said in Psalm 51. Look at it on the screen. And I want to give it to you out of Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. But listen to the way he says it. This is David's cry. David says, going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship. When my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. I want to break your box a little bit this morning, all right? Now this may shock you, so get ready. There are no perfect attendance awards given out in heaven now I know we're big on them down here I grew up in church where people like to wear their pins man got my perfect attendance God's not in heaven going Vance read his Bible every day this week well that's great There's not a check anybody in this building can write that impresses God. There's no amount that we can give. And God goes, wow, boy, they mean business. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's not that those activities aren't important. But they're only important to the degree that they are being lived out of the overflow of my intimate fellowship with God. You see, if I'm coming to church because I believe I'm checking off my list of dues to somehow make God happy, then I've missed the very essence of what gathering together for worship is all about. But if I've come in here this morning because I know there's a God in heaven who set me free from my sin and he's brought me into relationship with himself and he desires for me to know him and to love him and to live in fellowship with him. Now this has meaning and significance and value. Listen, if I get up every day to read my Bible because I believe I got to read my Bible because I'm a Christian, I've missed the very essence of why God gave me his word. God gave me his word that I could know him and love him and spend intimate moments in fellowship with him. The only life that pleases the father is the real thing. Let me take it a step further. And this hurts. It hurts me. But the only thing in me that pleases God is not me at all. It's Christ in me. There's not one thing about me. There's not one thing about me that pleases God. 
but Christ in me. And the degree to which I allow myself to die to self and Christ to live in me, then God finds glory in me. It's the only life that pleases the Father. Number two, the real thing is the only life that impacts the world. Listen, the world knows religion. They don't need a Christian brand of it. The world knows man's system of do's and don'ts and right. They don't need our brand of morality. Let me tell you what they need. They need the real thing. Genuine, authentic faith. I came across a quote by a man named Robert Lewis. Listen to what Robert Lewis said. Put it on the screen. I read it a long time ago, but it just so captures this. Listen to what he said. The world is tired of the church impersonally talking it down and chewing it up. What the world waits to see is whether what we have is better than what they have. Just think what bridges we could build if we truly followed the example of the New Testament church. We would go beyond being seeker-sensitive to a new frontier of being community-admired. We would be known not just by the corner we inhabit, but by the city with which we interact. And we and people, listen to this, I love this. People would be drawn to God, not because of the weekly show in our churches, but by the irrefutable lives we incarnate. I never cease to be amazed. You get in circles of church planters or you talk to people inside the church and everybody wants to talk about contemporary versus traditional. Should we wear suits and ties or blue jeans and our tails tucked out of our shirts? How should we dress and what style of music should we do to attract people? Listen, the world could care less. There's nobody out there in the bars or the streets of our city going, hmm, I'm wondering, should I go contemporary or traditional this weekend? When they come in our church, let me tell you what they care about. Is it real? Is it genuine? Is it putting families back together? Is it changing people's lives? Is it redeeming people out of the way that they are and giving them a relationship with God? They want to know if it's authentic. The only life, the only thing that impacts the world is the real thing. There's never been a greater example of that to me that I know of personally than Dr. Martha Myers. As a church, we partner and are part of the denomination called the Southern Baptist Convention because one of the things that we believe is that we can do more together than we can do by ourselves. And in partnering with the Southern Baptist Convention, we have the International Mission Board that now has 5,000 missionaries serving in over 180 countries around the world. Dr. Martha Myers was one of those missionaries. She served for 24 years at the Baptist Hospital in Jibla, Yemen. Yemen is a country that is unreached. It's a country that in many ways has no access to the gospel. There are people groups inside of that country that run up into the millions that have no access to the gospel at all in their language. For 24 years, Dr. Martha Myers served in obscurity in that hospital. In her 24 years there, that hospital served over 1 million Yemeni people. I want to put a picture of Dr. Martha Myers on the screen. 
Dr. Jerry Rankin, who was president of our International Mission Board, said of her, only those who saw her take a sick Arab child in her arms could understand what a servant is. Every day she lived there, she died to self. Many compared her her to a Southern Baptist version of Mother Teresa. In 2002, an Islamic extremist armed with an automatic weapon walked into that Baptist hospital in Jibla, Yemen, and he shot and killed Dr. Martha along with two of her colleagues. This gunman's wife had been treated by Dr. Martha. And here's what he said. Her love was so powerful that if I did not stop her, everyone would become a Christian. There'd never been a Christian funeral in Yemen before. They decided to do her funeral there in the compound that was that hospital. 40,000 Yemenis gathered for a half mile down the fence to pay their respect to Dr. Martha. During the funeral, the missionaries began to cry those tears of grief and tears of joy. And as they were crying, one Yemeni woman from the other side of the fence shouted, Do not cry. Do not cry. She is with the Father in heaven. When her father was asked, Why would you bury her in Yemen instead of her home state of Alabama? Listen to what he said. In Alabama... Her grave would be just a grave. In Yemen, her grave is a testimony. In a country where Christian tombs are often desecrated, I want to show you a picture where they wrote in Arabic and in English on her tomb, She loved God. That is the real thing. The world is not interested in our religion. But they are drawn to Christ as He is seen in us. So in closing, let me give you quickly three defining statements about the real thing. Here's the first one. The real thing is not my living for Him, but His living through me. Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness. The word practice there in the Greek is literally the word to do. So you could translate it this way. Beware of righteous doing. Pay attention to your doing. If you ask the average Christian in America, I'm afraid today... If you ask them, what is the goal of the Christian life? Here's the response. I believe most Christians in America would give you. The goal of the Christian life is to live for God. To obey God. Now, doesn't that sound spiritual? I mean, the goal is to live 
for God. But let me tell you what that subtly does. It puts all the emphasis on doing. I've even heard people with good intentions say, man, God's done so much for me. God's been so great to me. Now I want to, listen, do something great for God. God didn't bring me into relationship with Him so that I could do something great for Him. Listen, God brought me into relationship with Him so He could do something great through me. Listen, that's not just semantics. That's the difference in freedom and bondage. It's the difference in focusing on the activity and focusing on intimacy with God. Jesus did not bring you into relationship with himself so that you could live for him. He brought you into relationship with himself so that he might live through you. There's no greater example of this in the New Testament than in John chapter 15. You need to turn there, look on the screen. John 15 verse 4. Jesus uses a great illustration. Listen to what he says. I love these verses. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now I want you to read the rest of it out loud with me. Here we go. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I don't want you to give me your Jesus answer right now, okay? I want, me to, I want you to give me your agricultural answer. I want you to think like you're in the field. Don't, don't, don't think like we're at church, all right? What is fruit? Think about it. What is fruit? Listen, fruit, fruit is the life of the vine being pressed out through the branches. That's fruit. You got a grapevine, you're going to get grapes. You got an apple tree, you're going to get apples. It's the life of the vine being pressed out through. Anybody ever been out in a field and seen the branches of an apple tree working hard to make those apples? What can a branch do? What can a branch do to bear fruit? Let me tell you what a branch can do. There's only one thing. Hang on to the vine for all it's worth. Who's the vine? Say it now. Let me give you a Jesus answer. Who's the vine? Who's the branch? You and me, right? What are we supposed to do? I heard somebody say it. Here's the way we answer that. We, we say, bear fruit. No. You study John 15. There's not one single command in John 15 for you and I to bear fruit. But over and over again, Jesus says, here's your role. You abide. You hang on to the vine for all it's worth. And he will press his life through you. The only hope. That's why Jesus went on to say, apart from me, you can do what? It's actually in the Greek a double negative. It's not good English, but it's good Greek. It literally means absolutely nothing. 
You know what that means, right? There's nothing I can do to please God. It's only to the degree that I'm hanging on to the vine and allowing Christ to press his life through me that his life brings glory and honor to the Father. The real thing is not me living for him. It's his living through me. Y'all got it? All right, let's move to the next one. I wish we had more time. Number two, the real thing is not about me. It's all about him. Well, listen to what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. The word noticed, this is another great Greek word. We get an English word from it. Guess what word we get? The word theatrical. We know what that is, right? That's putting on a show. If we're not careful, our living out of our faith is really all about what people think about me and not what people think about him. Let me give you a stinging reality, and this hurts. I I read it in Kay Arthur's book this week. Listen to what she said. The flesh wants to be seen. It wants to be noticed. And if I'm not careful, if I don't pay attention, my attendance at church, my prayers, my giving, my serving, even my quiet time can be driven by the motive of what others think about me. I can stand up to preach the Word of God and it not please God at all because I can be consumed with what what you think about me when you leave and not what you think about Him. Let me ask you a few questions. When I pray, am I focused on God or what others think about the eloquent words that I'm using as I pray? Hey, I'm not up here today telling you I got this thing licked, all right? This stuff I live with every day. Come on, let's get, let's get honest. We, we're in the group and it's time to pray. We listen to somebody else pray and we think, wow, that's good. I think I hear a few sniffles. Man, I got to bring one. When I give, am I content if nobody knows but God? Isn't it amazing how when we give a big sacrificial gift, it somehow immediately always finds itself in the middle of every conversation we're having? When I serve, do I get disappointed if nobody recognizes me for what I've done? Nobody even said a word. All the time and energy and effort. Who were you in it for? We've worshipped this morning. When I worship, am I focused on God? Or am I focused on what the people around me think about how I sound or how I look? Or, well, I can't raise my hand. Pastor, they're going to think I'm charismatic. 
the real thing. It doesn't focus on me. It's on Him. Hey, if we're not careful, even our quiet time can be driven not to spend time with the Father, but just because I know I've got to answer the accountability question in my small group, and I don't want to be that guy. That's the guy we get around and pray over at the end of the group. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> the great relief I get, say, six out of seven days this week, so I get the pass, right? I get the attaboy. Authentic faith is not consumed with what others think about me. It's consumed with what others think about him. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 50? He said, listen, I do not seek my own glory. He lived for the glory of the Father. So here's what that means. When it's about me, it's not him. It's me. Third defining statement. We're done. The real thing is not just about this life. It's about the life to come. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. You see, the Bible teaches us who follow Christ that one day we will be rewarded For the activities of this life. Three times in these verses. Verse 4, verse 6, and verse 18. Same phrase. Your father who sees what is done in secret. Will reward you. It's not just taught here in other places in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3, 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. But listen. What an unbelievable picture of grace. Did you hear what is happening here? What have we just said? The only activities that please the Father is not me, it's who? Christ in me. So to the degree that I die to self and allow Christ to live in me, you hear what's going to happen? I'm going to be given rewards in heaven for what he's done. No wonder our response will be to take those rewards and lay them at His feet in awe of His grace. Because in that moment, you know what we'll realize? The only thing of value in our lives was Christ in us. And how humbling of a reality that He would reward us for being simply a vessel through which He could manifest His life. And our response will be to take those rewards and lay them at His feet and sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. No wonder they call it amazing grace. But here's the point. If I miss the real thing, I can dot every I and cross every T. And on that day, 
stand empty-handed. Because all the while I was making apple pies, I didn't realize God didn't like apple pie. I believe some of the most rewarded people in heaven will be names that you and I have never heard of. It's not going to be the names that we see up in lights at the conferences. It's not going to be the names on the bestseller list out of New York Times. It's going to be people like Dr. Martha. The only reason we know her name is because somebody shot and killed her. For 24 years, she gave her life to a people. For 24 years. Listen, that guy didn't take her life that day. She gave it the day she got on the plane. That is the real thing. Him in me for His glory in light of eternity. Let's pray. Oh God, what we're talking about today, Lord, it is rubber meets the road kind of stuff. Lord, and if Christians in this room will get honest, this is stuff every one of us deals with every day of our lives. Our flesh is wicked. It wants to be noticed. It wants to be stroked. It wants to be seen. It wants to be appreciated. As you sit in the quiet of this moment, before we stand and sing a song of worship that I think really expresses the heart of the message today, I want to ask you a few questions and I want you to ponder these in your heart. And here's the first one Are you settling for less than the real thing? Are you focused on living for Him or on Him living through you? Are you focused on the doing or the being? The activity or the intimacy? Are you more concerned with what others think of you than you are what others think of Him? each day in light of eternity that moment when you get to lay those rewards at the feet of Jesus maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ at all you've never given your life to Jesus in just a moment when we stand and sing we're going to have some of our pastors here at the front and prayer volunteers along the side and at the back if God has spoken to you 
and you need someone to talk with you this morning, you need to give your life to Christ, you can go to one of these pastors or prayer volunteers and say to them, I need to give my life to Christ and they'll talk with you. Maybe this morning God's spoken to you about something else in your heart or you just have a burden and you need somebody to pray with you. That's why these people are here. You go to one of them and say, I just need to pray with someone today. For the rest of us, this is the time to take the words of this song and really think about them and sing it as an offering of praise to God. Don't worry about the people around you. You just focus on Him. God, have your way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.